Jordan Peterson versus Sam Harris. The debate is finally here. Mr. Reagan. This debate was rich with beautifully expressed ideas. Who won? Was there a winner at all? At the end of my breakdown, I'll express my opinion on that. Leave a note in the comments and tell me if you agree. At 26 minutes into the debate, Jordan Peterson defines religious fundamentalism. Sam Harris consistently refers to this as dogmatism, but it's basically the same idea. It's important that we understand uh, what this is because they talk about this a lot. So let's go 26 minutes in and hear Jordan Peterson's definition of this so we can move forward with a basic understanding of what these two are debating. That's really not the claim that religious fundamentalists make. The claim they make is worse than that because they claim that the Quran, say, or the Bible for that matter, is the literal word of God. But more than that, they claim that their understanding of that word is correct. Which means yeah. they conflate two things, like, because you could imagine a situation where you had a book, and I'm not saying this is the case, it's, it's an imaginative exercise, where you had a book that had all the answers, that was extraordinarily complicated, and so that when you read it, it wouldn't be obvious that you understood it, or perhaps it wouldn't be obvious that you didn't understand it either, but you're not going to be able to, you can't get an uninterpreted version of the book, and so the fundamentalist claim is far worse, it's that not only is there an absolute reality, truth, embedded in the book, yeah. but that their particular take on that absolute reality is the absolute take on that book. Yeah. So they conflate their own, they, they, they make an assumption of their own omniscience and then pass that off onto God. Yeah, so except okay, now we can start the debate at the beginning. See, one of the things that uh, Carl Rogers said, the psych psych psychologist, was that one of the good way to have a discussion with someone is to tell them what you think they think until they think that what you said reflects what they said. But like, this is a really useful thing to know if you're ever having a discussion with an intimate partner, for example, is that you have to put their argument back to them in terms they agree with. It's very difficult. So I'm going to try to do that. And so, so the first thing is, I think, I think that partly what's driving you, if, if, if this is accurate, is that you want to ground a structure of ethics in something solid. And, and, and there's, two, there's two things you want to avoid, two catastrophes, let's say. One is the catastrophe that you identified with religious fundamentalism. And the other is the catastrophe that's associated with moral relativism. Is that, is that reasonable? Yeah, that's good. Okay, good, good. Okay, well, no, but this... <laughs> so the basic idea here is that fundamentalism is a fixed interpretation of a set of ethics. The problem with that is that uh, human beings are imperfect, so our interpretations are also bound to be imperfect. So some humility is necessary, some flexibility is necessary for the improvement of religious interpretation. Relativism is the idea that there is no fixed morality, that everybody should just be able to decide what is good and bad for themselves. The problem with relativism is that if there's no real morality, no true morality that is fixed, then morality is purely arbitrary. And so there is no morality at all. Moral relativism is so obviously absurd, so axiomatically absurd, that you can see it's wrong without thinking about it too much. The idea that everybody's ethics are whatever they choose means the most monstrous crimes in the world could be ethically justified by those who genuinely believe they're good. So to find a balance between fundamentalism and relativism is tricky. Sam Harris argues, through the use of the word dogmatism, that essentially all religion is fundamentalism. The only reason why I would focus on religion in particular there is that religion is the only language game wherein fundamentalism and dogmatism, dogmatism is not a pejorative concept. Dogma is a good word, in, specifically within Catholicism. And the notion that you must believe things on faith, that is in the absence of compelling evidence that would otherwise cause a rational person to believe it, that in a religious context is considered a feature, not a bug. Elsewhere, we recognize it to be a bug. And that's, that's why the, the unique okay, focus so, on religion. So, okay. I would offer this perspective. Both fundamentalism and relativism must exist together. Everyone must be subject to certain uniform ethics for society to function. We consider breaches of universally accepted interpersonal ethics to be fundamentally wrong. Malevolence that affects other people, hurting somebody else. And this is not merely a religious idea. This is established in law. Murder, rape, theft, assault, mutilation, all considered wrong. But our strict adherence to these ideas is a form of dogmatism. So Harris's criticism of dogmatism 
is, I think, lacking. There is clearly a value in adhering to certain values dogmatically. There is absolute truth and there are absolute ethics. However, humans are still imperfect beings. We are, none of us, capable of fully recognizing the absolute right and wrong thing to do in every circumstance, ever. Why? Because we rarely have access to all the information and none of us are so well connected to the divine to fully and clearly know what is right in any circumstance. But despite these failings, we still must try. Positive intent paired with proper knowledge of ethics are keys to being a good person. And being a good person is the only way to be happy. And this is why we need religion. Because isn't this what religion is? Isn't religion a guide to understanding absolute truth, absolute morality? God wants us to be this way. We want to show our gratitude to God, and so we act in a way he wants for us to act. And this is our motivation. And so religion is good. Religion is necessary. Debate over, I win. <laughs> I would identify that with fundamentalism more generally, not, not with religious fundamentalism yeah. per se, because I see it also happening, happening in secular states, let's say, like Nazi sure. Germany. Or, sure. or, 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 so it doesn't seem to be religious fundamentalism per se that's crucial to your argument. This is an incredibly valid point. Religion does not have a monopoly on humanity's mistake of fixed interpretations of ethics, fundamentalism. This is probably the most common and egregious fallacious attack on Christianity, that Christianity is responsible for any of the bad actions done by any Christians ever or done in the name of Christianity. Peterson makes a great point later about chimpanzees. The chimps at Gombe yep. would go on raiding parties, right? And if they found an interloper on the border, near the border, from another troop, they would tear them to pieces. See, I've been really interested in the commission of atrocity in the service of belief. It's tempting to pin that, say, on dogma and then to associate that with religious dogma. I think that's all tempting. But the fact that chimps do it shows that it can't be a consequence of something like religious belief. And so they're not religious and they don't really hold a secular totalitarian viewpoint, but they act out, they still act out the, the atrocity element that's characteristic of human behavior. So to me, that makes the problem deeper than one of mere surface statements, surface statements about yeah, yeah. metaphysics. Peterson makes the point that these so-called primate cousins of ours are horrifically violent, which they are. And so that horrific violence is a core instinct in human nature, or, or that we at least have a significant capacity for human violence. And I think that this is obvious to anyone who has read about war or atrocities or any of these things. Humans do indeed have the capacity for horrific violence and cruelty, some more than others. With regard to cruelty, just look at children. Children are shockingly cruel sometimes. So the question is rarely, did this system of ethics or government or culture cause violence or cruelty or other human failings? But rather, did it curtail or facilitate these otherwise natural failings of humanity? This is actually accepted by Sam Harris here. Uh, I mean, we have we have these primate capacities that we have to correct for, and we're busily trying to correct for almost everything that we've been evolved to do. I mean, we're not... We, you know, we don't like the state of nature for good reason, and virtually everything that's good about human life is born of our, I would argue, culture-based and, and you know, highly intelligent and necessary effort to, to mitigate what is, in fact, natural for us. And natu I mean, there's nothing more natural than tribal violence, which of the sort that you're, you're okay. describing in chips. I think that it's pretty obvious that Christianity has been the best constraint on human violence, cruelty, and moral failing, the best facilitator of human progress, of any moral system in history. But often it is blamed for violence, blamed for cruelty, blamed for moral failings. And often the influence of Christianity is utterly ignored when one looks back at the technological and cultural progress of Western civilization. This is, I think, a huge mistake. The question is not, were the abuses reported during the Crusades a reflection of Christianity? The question is, without Christianity, under some other system of ethics, would the abuses reported during the Crusades have been far worse? I propose to you that without Christianity, the Crusades would have been apocalyptic. Under just about any other religion or anti-religious system of government, Western Europe would have retaliated against the Islamic world much earlier and with much less restraint. Western Europe, unconstrained from natural human impulses for violence, would have obliterated the Islamic world. The lands would have been occupied or decimated, the elderly would have been slaughtered, the men would have been taken as slaves, the women as concubines. There would no longer be Islam. Christianity is sometimes condemned for being the religion of the American colonists, colonists who are accused of murdering the Indians and stealing their lands. 
But what if the European colonists had practiced the ethics of the Indians they are accused of having maltreated? If the Christian European colonists had followed the moral system of some of the Indians they displaced, the genocide the colonists are accused of would have been real genocide. The Europeans would literally have killed off every man, woman, and child in the North American continent. Christianity did not just curtail this potential genocide. It actually inspired many Europeans to fight for the rights of native populations and to reach out to them and to work with them and to bring them medicines and education. Christianity inspired the best in the Europeans as well as suppressing the worst in them. So, does Christianity have a monopoly on dogmatism, on fundamentalism? No. Just as it has no monopoly on any other human misdirection. The world we live in today, in Europe, in the U.S., and in the various former and current European colonies around the world, was almost completely developed by European cultures, with absolute foundations in extremely strong versions of Christianity. This has never significantly restricted the progress of philosophy or technological advancement in our civilization. It has, without question, facilitated this advancement in a way utterly unmatched by any other culture in the world. Sam Harris consistently references the Christian community's opposition to U.S. government funding of stem cell research because stem cells were at one point collected from the bodies of aborted babies. But this is a terrible example. It is perfectly reasonable to oppose scientific research that might facilitate or promote horrific crimes against humanity, which is what many people believe abortion is, mass murder, genocide. And it's not just Christians who believe that. It's unclear whether or not the human fetus has intrinsic human value. To suppose that it doesn't, to act like pro-life Christians are unreasonable for taking the opposite position, is not just disrespectful, it's dangerously arrogant. The pro-life side of the abortion debate is a perfectly reasonable one. It would be like saying that the horrific Nazi experiments on the Jews during the Holocaust were merely scientific progress, and that any condemnation of that experimentation is merely the product of a dogmatic adherence to fundamentalist Christianity. No. It goes to our fundamental ethics as human beings. Is the torture and mutilation of the few which result in the benefit of the many justified? This is a human question, not just a Christian question. You can't say Christians are against scientific progress because they have a humane concern for the individual against torture, mutilation, and murder. In short, you can't place dogmatism or fundamentalism purely at the feet of religion. And Christianity isn't absolutely dogmatic or fundamentalist anyway, even among so-called fundamentalist Christians. Science and philosophy have flourished under Christianity, more so than any other moral system. And that includes anti-religious systems like the USSR. Christianity facilitates progress. It doesn't impede it. Christianity good. Atheism bad. I win again. <laughs> One has to acknowledge that there's something uniquely pernicious, at least potentially, about religious beliefs. Because they, they have the, the otherworldly variable, the supernatural variable, the uh, you're going to get everything you want after you die, so this life doesn't matter issue. That, right. that allows for a kind of misbehavior that is especially... Sam Harris is clearly talking about Islam here. I think Islam is actually a huge problem. I consider Islam to be a corrupted form of Christianity. I know that sounds intolerant or whatever, uh, but this is not so much a judgment as an objective observation about the history of Islam. Islam accepts almost the entirety of the Christian Bible. Christ is considered an important prophet, I think second only to Muhammad, but this tends only to be true in theory, and not really at all in practice. Muslims consider Muhammad to be the final word on everything, and pretty much disregard Christ's teachings altogether. I think this is mostly true because Christianity is the primary religion on earth. It's, it's got the most followers, it tends to be followed by the most powerful people in the world today and throughout history. Many Muslims, I think, see Christianity as a threat to what they believe is the truth. So because of this enemy status, the teachings of Christ, I think, in practice are ignored by Muslims. Nevertheless, Muhammad's religion of Islam was founded on Christianity. He took out the divinity of Christ and then injected a bunch of crazy stuff that influenced many, many, many generations of Muslims. This is the kind of misuse we expect to see with any powerful tool. Airplanes are an almost miraculous invention. They have revolutionized life on Earth. In 1945, two airplanes were used to drop atomic bombs on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing 185,000 people. A powerful tool can be used for powerful evil. 
Christianity is arguably the most powerful idea in the history of the world. It has unquestionably done the most good of any idea in history. And so, I believe, Islam, being a corruption of Christianity, is an unimaginably powerful misuse of the most powerful tool ever developed in the history of the world. But Sam Harris is making an unforgivable conflation here. He's using the failings of Islam to condemn Christianity. If we discovered that Christians were acting evil throughout their lives because they were convinced that this life didn't really matter, then he would be right. But that just isn't the case. Real life just doesn't play out that way. It never has. Throughout the history of Christian civilization, people have been better than they would otherwise have been because of Christianity. We know this because the world has advanced by every metric faster and further than in any time in recorded history since the proliferation of Christianity. In a world in which Christian ethics are dominant, Christianity wins again. Debate over. I mean, in some ways, you are recapitulating an argument I've made, and this is an argument that I would make against you were you to claim, as you've ha you have elsewhere, that atheism is responsible for the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. The idea that Stalinism and Nazism and fascism were expressions of atheism simply doesn't make any sense. I mean, in the case of fascism and, and Nazism, it doesn't make any sense because the, the fascists and the Nazis, by and large, were not even atheists. But even in the case of Stalin, what was so wrong with that situation was were all the ways in which it so resembled a religion. You had a personality cult, you had dogmatism that held sway to a point where apostasy and blasphemy were killing offenses. You know, the, the people who, who, who didn't toe the line were eradicated. The idea that the Soviet government was akin to religion is probably the most unconvincing, absurd, and desperate point in a debate I have ever heard made ever. How is he defining religion here? I mean, generally speaking, religion is the idea that there's a god or gods who created the universe and brought us into existence and are supernaturally superior to us humans. As a point of gratitude toward God, we act in a way that he approves of. This is a simple idea of religion. The Soviet Union explicitly forbade the practice of religion. It demanded total loyalty. And okay, in that sense, and only that sense, it was similar to religion. People tend to be loyal to their faith, and people tend to be loyal to their country. But people are loyal to lots of things, and it doesn't make all of those things religion. Sam Harris makes two accusations of similarity between the USSR and religion. The first accusation is that they are both personality cults. I mean, does he think that Christians today are Christians because of the charisma of Jesus Christ? I don't know if he's aware of this, but Jesus Christ isn't around today. I've never heard him speak. I'm not motivated to be a Christian because of how charming and funny and brilliant he is. I'm motivated to follow Jordan Peterson for those reasons. But I'm not a Jordan Petersonist. Jordan Peterson is not my God. God is my God, the Christian God. And I've never actually watched his lectures, so I can't tell you one way or another if he's charismatic. My guess would be yes, but I can't tell you that from personal experience. On a side note, I'd like to point out the use of the word cult. This is a common tactic amongst atheists. They often use ugly, degrading language when referring to sacred ideas in order to desanctify these ideas in the mind of the listener. In this case, he's trying to debase religious reference to Christ by referring to it as a personality cult. The degrading language tactic is, I think, grotesque. It is severely disrespectful. Atheists can rhetorically debase sacred ideas by using ugly, degrading words, but it shows, I think, that their arguments draw from emotion more than they would have you believe. Sam Harris then says about the USSR, dogmatism that had sway to a point where apostasy and blasphemy were killing offenses. You had dogmatism uh, that uh, held sway to a point where apostasy and blasphemy were killing offenses. This later accusation is, again, another deceitful rhetorical trick. He's saying that disloyalty to the state and what we refer to as treasonous language, were both capital offenses in the USSR. But he refers to disloyalty to the state as apostasy, a specifically religious word. He refers to treasonous language as blasphemy, again, a specifically religious word. He wants to trick the listener into thinking that speaking against the state and speaking against God are the same thing. But these are very different things. If your government suppresses disloyalty or dissension, you are imprisoned or killed. If your religion condemns apostasy or blasphemy, your consequence is determined by God. It's a private matter between you and God. False equivalency appears to be one of Sam Harris's weapons of choice, but it's a logical fallacy, a rhetorical trick. The second point I wanted to make about the stupidity of the idea that the USSR was a religion is that the USSR was a government. Everybody in the Soviet Union knew that. 
They were not also stupid as to think, oh, Stalin, you're our god now. You know, the people of Russia still knew who God was. They just weren't allowed to worship him. The USSR was an atheist state, and the atrocities of that state were facilitated by that atheist culture. No matter how many religious words Sam Harris uses to try to dispute this, it is absolutely true. The problem is dogmatism. The overarching problem is believing things strongly on bad evidence. And And the reason why dogmatism is so dangerous is that it is... It doesn't allow us to revise our bad ideas in real time through conversation. It is, it, dogmas have to be enforced by force or the threat of force. Because the moment someone has a better idea, you have to shut it down in order to preserve your dogma. Okay, okay. Christianity is not dogmatic. The claim is that the dogmatism of Christianity somehow restricts the search for truth through open dialogue. But there has probably been more writing about morality and ethics and the way we should act as human beings within Christian culture than in any other types of societies that have ever existed in the world. Throughout history, there has probably been more debate and discussion specifically about Christianity than about anything else in the world ever. Again, Christianity does not suppress debate and discussion. It encourages it. You, Sam Harris, are having an open debate, searching for truth in a society that was developed within the parameters of the Christian ethic. You enjoy the fruits of a Christian society. You are condemning Christianity for suppressing the very freedoms that you are, at this very moment, enjoying. You lose. Next point. What you're saying is that the reason to fear religious dogma is really on the dogma side and not the religion side, which at least leaves open the possibility that something could exist over on the religion side that doesn't have that characteristic, right? That often they travel in tandem, but that the thing to fear is not the religious belief, it is the dogmatic nature of the way it is. Oh, yeah. well, the, the, the other way to say that is the only thing that's wrong with religion is the dogmatism. Okay, so I think I have pretty well established that Christians are not dogmatic and that Christianity does not produce the harms that Sam Harris has suggested it should by dogmatism, and therefore, his entire criticism of Christianity fails. I win. Next point. So then, it also seems like we agree that the the core element of tribal alliance, which would have its roots, say, in, in the chimpanzee, proclivity to, or its analog in the chimpanzee proclivity to identify with the dominance hierarchy of the troop mm. is something that's a source of the proclivity for human social aggression that's independent of its, at least in, independent of any obvious religious substrate. So there are other yeah. reasons for group belief and the commission of atrocity that can't be directly attributed to, to religious dogma. Yeah, but, but, and what most worries me about religion, I would say, obviously religion can channel these primate urges in unhappy ways. So you you can get tribal violence that gets amplified by religious dogmatism, and that should trouble everyone. But it's not unique to religion. It's also nationalism, and it's racism, and it's all other kinds of dogmatism. What the hell is he talking about? Literally any kind of group identity facilitates tribal urges. Race, geography, gender, age, tastes in art and entertainment, for crying out loud. I think it was Milo Yiannopoulos who pointed out that Justin Bieber fans hated Selena Gomez fans after the couple broke up. Hated. To say that religion amplifies tribal urges is another example of trying to attribute a general element of human nature exclusively to religion. Not only is this wrong, but Jordan Peterson just explained why it was wrong. The core element of tribal alliance, which would have its roots, say, in in the chimpanzee proclivity to, or its analog in the chimpanzee proclivity to identify with the dominance hierarchy of the troop, mm. is something that's a source of the proclivity for human social aggression that's independent of its, at, at least in, independent of any obvious religious substrate. So there are other yeah. reasons for group belief and the commission of atrocity that can't be directly attributed to, to religious dogma. Come on, Sam. Are, were you not listening? Sam Harris is fundamentally wrong about religion amplifying tribal urges. It may be true about some religions, but strictly speaking, Christianity actually teaches people not to do this. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, the story of the Good Samaritan. I think that the reason we even have the anti-tribal ethic in our society, the only reason we're anti-racist, it all stems from Christianity. They really should have framed this debate about the merits of Christianity specifically and not religion generally, because Christianity is so radically different from almost every other religion that it doesn't really work for Sam Harris to apply his criticisms of 
religion generally. And Jordan Peterson is almost exclusively talking about the value of Christianity. So they're really debating past each other. I think Brett Weinstein expresses it best when he says the following. You know, there's a reason that you keep finding yourself at, at Islam. Sam Harris's ideas about religion come from a hugely wrong assumption. That is, he assumes that all religions are equally valid. If there is a God, and that God has a plan, and humans have a purpose within that grand scheme, then there is one truth. And if there is one truth, then one truth is more accurate than any of the others. So if there is a God, one of the religions is right, or at least more right than all the rest. So if Sam is trying to discredit all religion, he should never argue against the religion that he thinks is the most wrong. He should be arguing against the religion that he considers to be the most right. But Sam's intent appears to be to devalue religion in the mind of the debate listener instead of exploring truth. Sam Harris is being very tricky with all of his arguments. He's expressing criticisms of Islam and then saying, that's why Christianity is bad. He levels very reasonable criticisms of Islam, but then falsely attributes those criticisms to Christianity or to religion generally. Brett Weinstein does call him out eventually, and he kind of lets up a little but he does fall into this habit a few more times. His lack of specificity here, not specifically referring to Islam, actually really muddies the first half of this debate. It makes everything he's saying less clear than it should be. And I kind of think this is intentional. It's possible that this lack of clarity is completely accidental, but I think Sam Harris is a little bit afraid of getting owned, as they say. And so he's, he's sometimes being intentionally vague and convoluted. Slavery is condoned in the Bible, in both Testaments, and in the Quran. There's no getting away from that. Now, you can say, well, it's not the central thrust of any of these books, but if you, if you go to the books and try to figure out what the creator of the universe wants with respect to the owning and needless immiseration of other people, right, he expects you to keep slaves, and he's told you how to do it. The Bible does not condone slavery. Much of what the Bible says in both the Old Testament and the New Testament can be classified into three groups. Philosophy, history, governance. The philosophy of the Bible is not instructive with regard to slavery. What we are really talking about, what Sam Harris is referring to, are those instructive passages in the Bible which are absolutely characterized under governance. During the time that the Bible was written, slavery was common practice. The Bible's instructions regarding slavery were instructions on how to act within the parameters of the society that already existed. Nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that in a society free of slavery, that slavery should be established. Nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that slavery is good and should always exist. Sam Harris is here condemning the Bible essentially for not stating outright that slavery should be banned everywhere on earth immediately and forever. He's applying a modern luxury, universal freedom, to a culture that existed 2,000 years ago. He's saying that the fair and just and safe standards that we enjoy today in America should have been advocated in the Christian Bible, despite the fact that these luxuries took thousands of years to develop. The Bible does not condone slavery. So Sam, you said the problem here is that the dogma can't be updated. Right, that slavery is with us permanently because it's written into the dogma. But clearly, most of the traditions in which it's written into the holy book don't practice slavery, and the people who, uh, who adhere to these belief systems wouldn't defend the slavery. So clearly, there is the capacity for an update mechanism. Well, no, but not really. I mean, they've been forced, they've had it beaten out of them. Right? I mean, we fought a civil war in the U.S. to get rid of slavery. Christians had slavery beaten out of them? <laughs> okay, so... Let me get this straight. In the Civil War, it was the great atheist army of the North that came down and freed the slaves from the evil Christians in the South. It's funny. I don't remember that from my history books. Not that I put a lot of stock in high school history books, but I really don't think that's how it happened. Look, I don't think there's any question that the abolitionists were strong adherents to Christianity. They were, you might say, fundamentalists. This is an extraordinarily bad argument that Sam Harris makes. I imagine that there is some way for him to justify his assumption that Christianity is dogmatic and unchangeable. But this example, the example of slavery, is a horrible one. Christians universally oppose slavery. But it was Christians who abolished slavery in England, though. What was that? It was Christians who were at the forefront of the movement to abolish well, yeah, slavery I mean, in England. There are Christians on either side of everything. I mean, there's, there's no one else to no, do the job. Right, but, but that's well, yeah, the update. Wait, 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 wait. 
but so, so yes. there, but it was specifically Christians who were using their Christian belief as a justification for yes. eradicating slavery. The, the when Jordan Peterson makes the point that it was Christians who ended slavery in the world, Sam Harris dismisses this by saying, well, everybody at that time was a Christian, so that doesn't count. And, and then he gets this big applause from the crowd, I presume the people that came to see him specifically. And he's right. Many of the people who owned slaves who fought in the Civil War against the North were Christians. Many of them, I think, devout Christians. And Christians can do bad things. They can even do bad things using the Bible to defend them. But this is an even better example of Christianity not being dogmatic. It's self-correcting. It wasn't Christians being forced by some other group to abandon this bad practice. It was Christians forcing other Christians to abandon the bad practice. The reaction that the crowd had to Sam Harris's quip makes it sound as if he won a point here, and, and maybe he did in the minds of his followers. But in reality, he's wrong. Actually, I think he knows he's wrong. Honestly, I think that this is just the first argument that came into his head, so I'm not going to criticize him too harshly for losing this point. But in spite of the audience reaction, he did absolutely lose this point. Would you agree that there are things written into these religious texts that are, there are things that are just written in there that we now understand to be wrong? We have to be very careful about equating all the religious texts. I would say sentence by sentence, yes, you're, you're correct. Paragraph by paragraph, perhaps. But here's, here's the problem with complicated texts, especially ones that actually constitute narratives. So in, imagine, imagine this. So imagine you're in a movie, and it's a movie with a twist at the end. And so the entire movie is set up to make you think one particular way and to have one set of experiences. But when you put the twist in at the end, it changes the entire structure. And what it does is it makes these sorts of things quite complicated because in the, the, the Bible is a series of books and they had influence on one another and they were sequenced with a very complex editorial process and there's actually a developmental narrative that links all the chapters together. And what that means, you have to read the beginning as if it's also influenced by the end, which is what, by the way, and in case you think that I'm weaseling around here and I'm not, is that that's exactly what you do every time you read any story, any work of fiction. You say, well, you're claiming that the Bible is a work of fiction. It's like, don't, don't, that's, a, that's just a cheap objection. That's not my point. My point is that it's a narrative. And everything in a narrative is conditioned by all the rest of the things in the narrative. You don't have to read the book to the end to know that it's wrong. You can get, you can get that from the paragraph. It... Yeah, but that isn't what I said. I didn't say you had to read the end, to the end of the book to know that well, it's wrong. I said no that you needed, to end, you needed to read to the end of the book to contextualize those statements within the whole. As a writer who has been thinking about this for almost his entire life, I can 100% validate what Jordan Peterson is saying here. His analogy may be a little difficult to understand, however, because there is no twist at the end of the Bible which reframes everything that we believe we knew about the teachings. However, it is somewhat analogous in that one idea can reframe many other ideas so that they might mean something other than what we might otherwise believe. I believe that the Bible contains a number of, let's call them, meta-ideas. So, say you have 10,000 lessons in the Bible. 100 of those ideas can be classified in a particular way. Some of them seem to contradict each other. Some of them seem to have corrupted over time. Others seem to be pretty natural and straightforward, but they all fit into this same group. So, along with these specific teachings, you'll always find in the Bible these grander philosophical meta-ideas that you can use as an anchor to know how to interpret all these smaller, more specific lessons. And you'll know these meta-ideas because the Bible repeats them over and over and over again. All the most important fundamental philosophical moral values in the Bible are reinforced and preserved using the technique of redundancy. I think that's what Jordan Peterson means when he says sentence by sentence, yes, paragraph by paragraph, maybe. I would add to that, Ethic by ethic, absolutely not. Clearly the, the, the Bible thumpers of the South. The pejorative Bible thumper shows Harris's bias. It shows an utter disrespect for the ideas of others. In my mind, this is where Harris really loses my respect. I can suffer the slights here and there against Peterson, the attempts to gain points based on rhetorical tricks versus substance, but blatant bigotry is hard to ignore. And that's not because of some leftist idea about bigotry being the end-all evil in the world, but rather because it indicates a lack of rationality. He's not considering those he disagrees with as potential equals who have a different perspective. He's considering those he disagrees with as his inferiors to be ridiculed. If we escape the realm of the rational and slip into the realm of emotionally driven derision and ridicule, we're moving from the lecture hall to the playground. 
Fortunately for Harris, he's debating Peterson, and Peterson seems to be forcing some level of intellectual integrity. The problem is that you can, you can read into any story some apparently meaningful set of psychological insights. That's right. That is absolutely right. There are two ways to interpret any story, the correct way and the incorrect way. A lot of people argue that there is no correct way to interpret a story, that every, every interpretation is valid because the appreciation of art is subjective. But they are wrong. I, as a writer, have special insight into this particular truth. The correct interpretation of any story or narrative is the accurate perception of the author's intent. So there is only ever one way to properly interpret a story, and there are infinite number of ways to misinterpret it. Jordan Peterson and other theologians struggle intensely to try to determine the absolute correct interpretation of biblical stories. Sam Harris and other atheists lazily ascribe the worst possible interpretations of any Bible narrative. Logic begs the question, who is more likely to be right about the interpretation of the story. Is it he who intensely struggles to determine the accurate interpretation, or he who merely accepts the darkest, most nefarious, ugliest possible interpretation every single time? It's almost certainly true that Jordan Peterson's interpretation of biblical texts are going to be superior, more accurate than those of Sam Harris. There are certain things you can't, you, you can't over-interpret to your heart's content and come out any way you choose. Basically what Sam Harris is saying here is that my interpretations of the Bible are correct. If you disagree with me, you're just attempting to distort the text in order to come out with some conclusion that makes the Bible look good. In short, he's saying, I'm right, you're wrong. You, you, you know in your heart that my interpretation of this is correct. You just read the words. Yeah. Great argument, Sam. So, so there might be mathematical intuitions, a priori, let's say. Kant identified time and space as a priori intuitions. Right. But I think there's a third category of a priori intuitions that are, in fact, stories. So I'm going to do a quick rereading of the moral landscape. You talk about G.E. Moore's argument of infinite regress. If you claim that something's good and you equate it with something, you can also ask infinitely why the thing you're equating it with is good. Now, it seems to me that the way that you step out of that argument, you tell two stories. You tell a story about someone who has an absolutely terrible life. They're in a jungle where nature is trying to kill them all the time. And while they're trying to be killed by nature, while nature is trying to kill them all the time, horrible barbaric thugs are making their life miserable in every possible way. Okay, so that's one poll, let's say. And in another poll, you contrast a good life. And, you know, that's a life where the person has enough to eat and enough shelter. And they have the things that you would expect people to want. You say, this is a bad life. And you say, this is a good life. And, and then you make a side move, which I would say is that that's an objectively verifiable fact. I would say, I don't think it is an objectively verifiable fact. I think it's a fundamental moral claim. And I think that's where you put your stake in the ground. And I would say, when I read that, I thought... Well, if you take your jungle story, which you've extracted from a bunch of horrors and, and compiled, and you take your positive story, which you've extracted from a bunch of horrors or a bunch of, 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 of quasi-utopias, let's say, and compiled, you're two-thirds of the way to a landscape of hell and heaven. Right. Well, so then why not continue the abstraction and say, look, what we're really trying to avoid here is hell. Oh, yeah. What we're really trying yeah. to move towards is heaven. Yeah, but oh, yeah. But well, no, as I soon as you do that, you're in name, a religious landscape. No, no, but my name for hell is... So it's very interesting because, like, the, this, the, I mean, the, you and I were talking, we were talking about this at dinner. This is the moment Sam Harris begins losing. I honestly wish Sam Harris was genuinely seeking truth here in this debate and not simply trying to win points. I think it would be better for him and everybody watching. But, you know, he wants to win. So his default setting is contradict, 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 contradict. And... I don't know, it's not working. Sam never really recovers from this. So you act as though God exists. Yep. And in addition, I've heard you say that I act as though God exists, that I'm, I can't really well, be so an atheist. Far, so far, it's easy. Yeah, right, yeah. We'll the, see. The night is young. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, I'm not really an atheist. If I were really an atheist, I would be far more poorly behaved than in fact I am. Right? I would be like Rasolnikov committing murders and, and assuming there was nothing it wrong with more, it. It would be more likely, yes. Yeah, the so temptations laid open to Raskolnikov would be more at hand. What is the God-shaped thing I must have in my life to prevent me from being a, quote, real atheist? Like, what, what do you mean by God? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you some of the things that I mean by God. Okay. Uh-oh. Uh, we, we do have to get the question. Maybe we're going to do this tomorrow. Yeah, maybe this is where we, we start. Oh, God. 
This is actually pretty funny. This is the moment that Jordan Peterson has referred to several times in subsequent interviews when discussing this debate. Sam Harris has asked Jordan Peterson an incredibly profound question, what is God? Brett Weinstein is telling them that they're out of time, that Jordan Peterson does not have time to answer the question. They'll have to save it for tomorrow. And the crowd goes mental. <laughs> it's pretty brilliant. Here's, here's some propositions, and they're complicated, and they need to be unpacked. So I'm just going to read them, and you're, that'll have to do for the time being. So, God is how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence and action of consciousness across time. As the most real aspects of existence manifest themselves across the longest of time frames, but are not necessarily apprehensible as objects in the here and now. So what that means in some sense is that you have conceptions of reality built into your biological and metaphysical structure that are a consequence of processes of evolution that, that occurred over unbelievably vast expanses of time, and that structure your perception of reality in ways that it wouldn't be structured if you only lived for the amount of time that you're going to live. And that's also part of the problem of deriving values from facts, because you're evanescent and, and you can't derive the right values from the facts that portray themselves to you in your lifespan, which is why you have a biological structure that's like 3.5 billion years old. So God is that which eternally dies and is reborn in the pursuit of higher being and truth. That's a fundamental element of hero mythology. God is the highest value in the hierarchy of values. That's another way of looking at it. God is what calls and what responds in the eternal call to adventure. God is the voice of conscience. God is the source of judgment and mercy and guilt. God is the future to which we make sacrifices and something akin to the transcendental repository of reputation. Here's a cool one if you're an evolutionary biologist. God, God, God is that which selects among men in the eternal hierarchy of men. So, you know, men arrange themselves into hierarchies and then men rise in the hierarchy. And there's principles that are important that determine the probability of their rise. And those principles aren't tyrannical power. They're something like the ability to articulate truth and the ability to be competent and the ability to make appropriate moral judgments. And if you can do that in a given situation, then all the other men will vote you up the hierarchy, so to speak, and that will radically increase your reproductive fitness. And the operation of that process across long expanses of time looks to me like it's codified in something like the notion of God the Father. It's also the same thing that makes women, men attractive to women. Because women peel off the top of the male hierarchy. And the question is, what should be at the top of the hierarchy? And the answer right now is tyranny as part of the patriarchy. But the real answer is something more like the ability to use truthful speech in the service of, let's say, well-being. And so that's, that's something that operates across tremendous expanses of time. And it plays a role in the selection for survival itself, which makes it a fundamental reality. Uh, I'll stop with that for now. What? To call that thing God is fine, that's a god I have no problem with, right? But that's not how most people most of the time are using the word, and there's something misleading about that, and that's, that worries me. Yeah, well, if, if, the claim, if, if the claim that you're making is that we're all deeply confused about the nature of divinity and ultimate reality, it's like, yeah, yes, yep, well, clearly. Well, Sam Harris just figured out that he can't win. Right now he's thinking, but you're not defending the God I want you to defend. He just realized that he's not doing the debate that he prepared for. Peterson is not going to permit him to dismantle the straw man God that he's built up in his mind over all these years. Most atheists present in debates a ludicrous caricature of God that sounds ridiculous and can easily be ridiculed. They always win lots of points with the audience this way and it makes them sound superior. But Jordan Peterson's God definition is extremely sophisticated. Harris has spent a lifetime dismantling the idea of the man in the sky, the fairy tale version of God, a human-esque figure that grants wishes. He did not expect Peterson to provide a serious definition. I actually think it would have been better had Peterson said that God might be real, as opposed to this manifestation of incomprehensible phenomena that we perceive but we don't fully understand and can't quite grasp. It's a good definition, it's Peterson's definition, but it's not the definition Harris wants to fight. If Harris hadn't been so dumbstruck by this definition, he might have had the sense to ask Peterson the crucial question, the question he was really getting at. Does Peterson believe in God as a conscious being? I'm actually shocked that this wasn't Sam's follow-up. Perhaps we'll get there in the next debate. For the record, I believe in God as a conscious being. I, I was not hearing in that list of attributes a God who, a personal God who can possibly hear anyone's prayers, much less answer them. Okay, so, so and I, you might like this, you maybe don't, but, well, it, it's possible. Okay, so imagine that perhaps you've decided that, any of you, you've decided that you've seriously done something wrong, okay, and that you, you want to get away from hell, you want to make things better. Okay, so here's, here's an exercise you can try. So here, what you do is, is, is you sit on the edge of your bed, and you say, okay, what I did was wrong. And, and you have to really believe this, right? So you've thought about it, it's killing you. 
It's killing you. So now you're penitent and you're confessing, let's say. And you're confessing to yourself as much as to anyone. And you say, I really want to know what I did wrong. And I really want to know what I could do to put it right. And I'm willing to accept any answer that will manifest itself to me. Try that. See what happens. Well, I, yeah, that's a prayer that will be answered, and it won't be answered in the way that you want it to be answered. I can bloody well tell you that. Okay, but, but that... I have actually done this. In fact, I suspect almost every Christian has done this. You know, I once considered the question of Jesus Christ. I, I thought about the purpose of Jesus Christ. Why was it necessary for God to manifest a human representation of himself on earth in order to shift the world to a direction better in keeping with his desires? Why did Christ have to be persecuted and die for this to happen? Why did there need to be a savior of all men? The answer to these questions that I discovered was that it, it is necessary to recognize our failures in order to self-correct for them. The precise thing that Sam Harris has been criticizing religion for impeding. A fundamental stipulation in Christianity is that Christians must, when asking for forgiveness, recognize their sin, acknowledge the sin was wrong, genuinely repent, and genuinely intend to do better in the future. Christianity has, built into it, a self-correction mechanism. Whether or not there is an additional element of divine intervention, this mechanism alone is amazing. It is very difficult to inspire people to engage in self-reflection. It's even more difficult to inspire people to engage in self-reflection specifically about their failings. A demonstration of love, the sacrifice of God's Son for the redemption of all of humanity, is so powerful that it has actually inspired millions upon millions of people, countless generations all the way back to the days of Christ, for 2,000 years to engage in this kind of self-reflection and self-betterment. Conclusion. Sam Harris concludes the debate with an assertion that it is unnecessary to evoke biblical stories in order to discourage aberrant behavior and encourage virtuous behavior. Jordan Peterson strikes back with a fact drawn from his experience as a clinical psychologist that rational arguments for behavioral intervention are extremely ineffective. The rest of the debate winds down unremarkably. There are no satisfying points of agreement. There is no moment when either party owns the other party. Brett Weinstein does not provide any satisfyingly comprehensive and concise summary of the debate. The two juggernauts just continue to debate minor points until time runs out, and then they decide that they've got to save their energy for debate number two. I believe that I can summarize the debate, however. Sam Harris, although intensely intellectual, seems to derive much of his analysis of religion on the same kinds of biases that I've seen to be typical of every high-profile atheist. Sam Harris is more convincing than most other famous atheists because he is very clever about disguising his biases as reasoned analysis. And to be fair, there is a lot of reasoned analysis behind his ideas. But all that reasoned analysis emerges from the biases. It does not inform the biases. A good idea is best presented clearly and simply. A bad idea is presented using a myriad of manipulations, emotion, confusion, rhetoric, whatever trick you can manifest to win people over. Sam Harris seems to employ three basic tactics when attempting to discredit the value of religion. First, he uses failings from one religion to condemn another religion, mainly the failings of Islam to discredit Christianity. Secondly, he consistently invokes the worst possible interpretations of biblical texts. Then he uses those ugly interpretations in order to misrepresent the Bible in its entirety. Thirdly, he arrogantly assumes that our current state, Western civilization in 2018, is the pinnacle of morality. He seems to believe that we have today a finer understanding of what is truly moral and what is truly immoral. His answer to the question about how do we get better is scientific inquiry, debate, and discussion. That all sounds wonderful, but none of that answers the real problem. The problem being, what is the point? Why be good if there's no God to thank? I have come to realize a profound truth recently. This truth emerged from a realization that I'm happy. Not only am I happy, but I think if a few things were different in my life, I would actually be as happy as it is humanly possible to be. But the happier I get, the less content I find myself. This struck me as curious, so I thought about it, and I came to a profound realization. I don't want to be happy. What I really want is to make a significant positive impact on the world. And being happy, being really happy, indicates that I am not moving toward that goal. I'm stagnant. In order to make a significant impact on the world, one needs to be pushing toward a goal. 
If you're pushing toward a goal, you feel it. There is some discomfort. You feel that you are pushing up against something, not physically, but metaphorically. In that sense, true happiness inevitably triggers unhappiness. If you ever become truly happy, you immediately become restless. You desire change. You feel a sudden compulsion to do something. Upon realizing these things, something Jordan Peterson said suddenly made sense to me. He said something like, the real value in life is taking on responsibility. Now, I didn't have that precise realization, but these two things are very closely related. The effort that it takes to be a responsible man or woman is the same kind of effort it takes to make significant change in the world. And you feel that pressure. You feel as though you're pushed up against something when you take on responsibility. There's always something you're pushing this way or pulling that way. You feel like you're doing something. I also think this is why we like playing video games. I always thought it was strange that we like playing video games. It doesn't make sense. We tend to associate happiness with pleasant things like candy and comfort and bed and love and sex and other things that feel good. We don't tend to associate happiness with struggling. And yet boys, young boys, teenagers, young men, and even older men, every day turn on their Nintendo Switch, their PlayStation, their Xbox, or their computer, and they intentionally engage in struggle. It's not real struggle, there's no real life consequences, but it often feels real. We've all seen somebody throw a controller at a wall. When we're playing a video game, the game becomes our entire world, at least for the time we're playing the game. Why would we act so irrationally? Because that struggle is what we crave. This is why video games are so addictive. It's why taking on responsibility truly makes us content. And this is why we all, deep down, are trying to change the world. So. Jordan Peterson versus Sam Harris. Did either of them win? Yes, I do think there was a winner. Jordan Peterson employed a strategy that I have often advocated. It is, I contend, the only surefire way to win any argument. He set out not to win, but rather to find truth. Sam Harris, however, set out to win. In a debate like this, if one party wants truth and is consistently changing tack, constantly turning toward that goal, he will get closer and closer and closer to the truth. If the other party is aiming to win, then they have a strong temptation to challenge their opponent at every tack. As the first party edges closer to truth, the second party will find themselves arguing against truth, simply to win points. And at that point, you're doomed. If you watch the full debate, and I highly recommend it, you will see the debate unfold exactly in this way. Peterson gets closer and closer and closer to truth, and Sam Harris just keeps trying to land points. Inevitably, Sam Harris looks like a desperate, exhausted fighter, looking for another way to land a punch. Sam Harris still had a bit of fight in him in the end, but this battle went to Peterson. Peterson won this debate, unquestioningly. Well, that's it for me. I set up a Patreon so that I can make more of these videos and try to spread some logic and reason around the world. Maybe eventually make this my full-time job. So if you've got a buck or two you can spare, please consider donating to my Patreon. Link is in the description. If you like this video, please hit the like button. If you want to see more like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, you're probably a Sam Harris fan. That's fair. <laughs> Good night. We have so many people who can't see a fat man standing beside a thin one without coming to the conclusion the fat man got that way by taking advantage of the thin one. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. Now, 